Fierce Pussy is really about an active intervention. They are always taking it into their own hands. So literally crossing out words on the page so that it reflects their desire or changing the names of streets in New York City to have the names of lesbian heroes. They just take it into their own hands. I think Fierce Pussy has very intentionally engaged in both constructing and deconstructing what queer history looks like. And that's part of the importance of the work. Welcome to Articulated. I'm Nora Daniels, Advancement Associate at the Archives of American Art. And I'm Thomas Edwards, Assistant to the Director and Deputy Director. Support for this podcast comes from the Alice L. Walton Foundation. In the previous episode, we talked about queer activist art that emerged in response to the AIDS crisis. And in this episode, we will discuss the history of Fierce Pussy, a group that formed from ACT UP members and worked for lesbian visibility. For more context on the AIDS epidemic and queer art, go back and listen to the previous episode. Throughout the 20th century, civil rights activist groups sought to remedy systemic failures and imbalances, and the HIV-AIDS epidemic decimated the LGBT community, people of color, and people without housing. Homophobia and racism slowed the national response and dulled its urgency for those in power, galvanizing activist groups towards action. Alongside the need for research, treatments, and support, there was also a need for understanding, acknowledgement, humanization, and community. Fierce Pussy is a collective that began as an outcry and conduit for lesbian visibility. Joy Episala, an artist who works between installation and the photographic and moving image, recounts the origins of the group in her 2016 oral history with Cynthia Carr. We started Fierce Pussy in 1991, and basically most of the women that became part of Fierce Pussy, which we considered a lesbian visibility art collective, had been in ACT UP. So the core members, I'd say at that point, were Zoe Leonard, Nancy Brooks Brody, Carrie Yamaoka, myself, and probably Suzanne Wright eventually. And Jean Carla Musto was around that time too. And so there was a bunch of women who had been in ACT UP as well. And so we would go to a friend's, one of our houses, to have a meeting. And this was all going on at the same time. So the ACT UP meeting was on a Monday night. So, Well, what was the impetus to start it? Like, was there something that happened that said, we've got to I think get that together? we all felt slightly invisible in ACT UP in a certain way. Yeah. You know, we were in the trenches and we were taking care of our comrades and our very good friends and lovers and, you know, whatever, right? You know, the women's issue on the, on the floor were they would come up. There was a women's caucus. But we thought that our visibility, lesbian visibility, was not really out there. And I guess because we were so sort of politically charged and charged in general about fighting the AIDS crisis, it just seemed, made sense. Yeah. Nancy Brooks Brody, an artist who deploys paint, drawing, and sculpture, was one of the first members of Fierce Pussy as well. In her 2018 oral history with Svetlana Kitto, she walks through coming out as an integral part of her activist work and how the desire for community drove Fierce Pussy's early efforts. I don't know. I can't say because yeah. I don't know another way because that's yeah. how I came yeah. out. But the timing was yes. such. 
where being gay and doing activism was lesbians did a lot of work with ACT UP and we there was a way in which the guys I think had a lot of bonding time I mean guys tell amazing stories about being at demos but then like going all out together afterwards to sex clubs and Mm -hmm. you know having and the lesbians I think you know because of invisibility and visibility we formed Fierce Pussy we did an open call on the floor of ACT UP for all lesbians who wanted to And a group of us met at Zoe's and we made those first lists, those, you know, using the words that were used against us to reclaim Mm -hmm. and put them on the street. It was like we and we very, very much like with an act up sensibility in terms of not a lot of processing around actions like you, you make it and you we just went right out onto the street the next day. And Mm -hmm. And that was when the city was. You know, you got your information from the walls. You saw, you know, bands, clubs, mm-hmm. events were all wheat on pasted. wheat pasted. Yeah. You know, you saw, you literally saw a wheat pasted sign and it was like, oh shit, you know, that's happening at CBGB's or the Mud Club or, and now it's like, I am a lezzy butch. You know, we just joined right in. The whole, mm-hmm. But we also decided to target other neighborhoods where maybe there wasn't so much wheat pace happening, like the Upper West Side. I don't know if I yeah. should go on. Oh, no, like please this. do. Oh, well, Fierce Pussy did just so remember, much together. Yeah, what, you know, just tell stories about it. Well, I mean, that was at that same time. We didn't stop going to act up. We just yeah. were like, and we wanted to do something a little more joyful. Life affirming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Something for us, something that wasn't about death. It was about life and living and being who we were mm-hmm. and having fun. Kerry Yamaoka was also a founding member of Fierce Pussy. A painter based in New York, Yamaoka worked for Condé Nast alongside Joy Episala, and the two of them used copiers at work to duplicate their activist materials for distribution. Here's how she describes the intensity and camaraderie of those years in her 2016 oral history with Alex Fialo. Those were, I mean, I don't know, those were very intense days because, like, Joy and I were working for magazines, we were working for Condé Nast, so we were working freelance. Um, so there was Condé Nast, then there was Act Up, then there was Fierce Pussy, then there was um, some ad hoc activist work we'd be doing with some other group, and then there was an attempt to still maintain our studio practice, which was really, really rough in those couple of years. And this was before anybody had cell phones or email, but it was like we were just going, 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 going all the time. It's amazing to me, actually, when I think back on it. And in many ways, we started Fierce Pussy. We got together with all of us because it was a little bit of an antidote to ACT UP. In ACT UP, you had to sit through many, many meetings with Robert's Rules of Order and listen to a million people that you might not have the patience for and things had to be really hashed out and talked out and it might take actually quite a while for an action to take place. I mean, that wasn't true of the affinity groups which acted on their own, but also part of the impetus for Fierce Pussy was that we needed our own space separate from the guys. You know, we wanted a celebration of our own identity and we wanted to address issues of, yeah, visibility and identity and who we were. And then we also made a rule in the very beginning that out of every meeting, there had to be a work created. So we were not going to sit around for ages and debate the wording of this, that, or the other. We had to like 
hash it out at, like right then and there and then produce it, get it out on the street wow. at the next meeting. Carrie Yamaoka goes on to describe some of the earliest fierce pussy projects, which were executed quickly during their meetings for lightning efficiency. Well, the first project was the list posters. Yeah. And part of the reason why there was... That was created in one meeting? Yeah, it kind of was, actually. Cause, and part of the reason why there were three list posters is because we couldn't narrow it down to just one list. And so instead of hashing it out and taking the time to decide on the wording for just one list, we just decided to do three. What do they say? They say, I am a mannish, muff diver, Amazon pervert, lesbian, and proud. I'm mixing it up yeah. for you. It's not verbatim. Yeah. But um, uh, we would all get together with wheat paste and buckets and brushes, and we'd go out on the streets and we'd take our Xeroxes, because they were all Xeroxes, mostly that, that Joy and I ran off at Condé Nast in our spare time. <laughs> Condé Nast is responsible for so much of the poster work, our early poster work. Um, <laughs> so we'd have these piles of Xeroxes. There'd be one or two. You know, it was also a roving band of people, so there might be 20 women that would show up for wheat pasting. And those 20 women weren't necessarily there when we made the poster, but they were game to kind of get it out and put it up on the street. So there'd be like two or three people doing lookout for the cops because wheat pasting is illegal. And then teams of us with buckets and rushes and just wheat paste them up all on the walls of, let's say, the East Village. Because in those days, that's, there was a lot of wheat pasting everywhere. The use of copy machines to mass-produce works was a key feature of activist groups during this period. Before the internet as we knew it now, and at a time without media coverage, artists had to work with materials at hand in order to spread their message and activate public awareness. We spoke with Kate Eichhorn, Associate Professor of Culture and Media at the New School, about the importance of those copy machines for activists in the 1990s. So in the case of Fierce Pussy, more than one member of the collective was working for Condé Nast. At the time, people were still doing paste-up, and they would be brought in to work at certain times of the month. And they had access, as a result, to copy machines. But people, in that this is something I talk about in my book, and it came up again and again, it wasn't just artists who were doing paste-up at Condé Nast. People were using copy machines in all sorts of corporate offices, in, including law offices um, all over New York City. So the fact that I think it was the, the Lesbian Avengers, they even you know, said quite explicitly that anyone out there who has access to a Xerox machine, this was considered to be a great benefit to any kind of activist or artist group. And we don't know the extent to which AIDS activism and queer activism in the 80s and 90s were basically underwritten by huge corporations. But there's a strong sense, looking back, that thousands and thousands of flyers, posters, and all sorts of propaganda was produced in those offices. So I think that that's a really kind of fascinating history. I make the argument in my book that unknowingly, it was probably the first benefit extended to queers and their communities and families by the corporate sector, Xerox access. These posters often dealt with a language around queerness. Joy Episala catalogs those early works in her oral history. So we started to talk about it, and we started to talk about the things that lesbians were called. Derogatory terms. Oh, yeah. That was the first meeting. And the first, the first posters, there were three list posters. It said, I am a, 
And then there was a list of words. So it could like be bulldagger, bulldagger, Amazon, feminist, um, pervert, butch, butch. Yeah, you <laughs> got like it. That, yeah. And proud uh-huh. was the yeah. last tagline. The recuperation of homophobic misogynist slurs is an important vector throughout Fierce Pussy's work. And it works in tandem with pride as the group reclaims hateful terms as means to unite immunity. Nancy Brooks Brody found this approach even more resonant in their later work. Here she describes a show at Printed Matter in New York City that included Zoe Leonard, Joy Episala, Carrie Yamaoka, and herself. Now we jump to like 2008. Fierce Pussy got A.A. Bronson, maybe it was, who called us out to do a quote-unquote retrospective in the back of Printed Matter, and we were also invited to make a book. Uh, I think they wanted to make more like kind of a bound book, and I, I, I suggested we make it with a spiral at the top, kind of calendar style, and put a hole in it so that people could take all of our posters and sort of handle the book closer to how we intended the work to be in the world. Like you could put a nail on your wall and have it up and out so it wouldn't just be this closed book and people could Xerox them and share them, tear them out if they wanted to. And one of the things we decided to do, we were like, well, let's do, let's not just show it our stuff as this like uh, history. Let's, let's make something new. So we decided to make a remix of all those lists that we had made. And so instead of it saying, and proud at the end, we said, and so are you. Like I am a lezzy, butch, fram, mannish, muff diver. We, we chose our favorite words from the three lists and made this one remix, and, and so are you. And we asked if we could do the entire window facade, a storefront of printed matter. Uh-huh. While we were installing that, we were like halfway done, and we were decided to go for lunch. Might have been almost all the way finished. Had lunch, came back, and we hear that the police had been there. There's been many, many, many calls. In fact, the police, the cops thought that the facade had been up for weeks for the amount of calls that he said that they wow. received. Wow. And this is like, I mean, it says I am a femme, butch, dyke, mannish. And so the people who worked at Print to Printed Matter were scared. And they, and they said that, that, oh, the children, there were schools in the area that these lang- this language was upsetting. And meantime, Joy looks up and we look at this. There's a huge billboard of this woman straddling a Quavassier bottle, which is like a giant yoni. Like, oh, nobody cares about that. So then we realized, like we were like, as, oh, my God, yeah. our work from 1992, yeah. and now we're in 2008, these same yeah. freaking words are offending people. We're like, oh, my God, this shit is still really relevant. We spoke with Claire Grace, assistant professor of art history at Wesleyan University, about how those works operate in a variety of contexts, from the streets of New York to bathroom installations. One of the things that's so interesting about the list is that it's first person declaration, I am a, and then there's this list of like radically distinct terms and epithets that don't necessarily all align as one characterization. So the poster is interesting for lots of reasons. I mean, in its initial presentation on the streets of New York, it was a work that was engaged in the politics of queer visibility. 
But in a more subtle sense, I think too, it kind of registers the potentially contradictory or at least multiplicity of queer subjects, of any subjects really, not just a non-binary subject, but also the sort of proliferation of gender formations that can exist, including in a single person. This spirit of multiplicity suffused other works as well, such as baby pictures, which paired pejorative terms with group members as childhood pictures to accent the dissonance between the labels and the humans degraded by them. Listen to Kara Yamaoka describe those works in their Lesbian Street Name Project, which honored other trailblazers. We wanted to insert ourselves into this list. So one way to do that was to use images of ourselves as children and apply those derogatory terms to those pictures. And so you'd have this, this juxtaposition of this very sweet baby picture with this derogatory name like Muff Diver or um, <laughs> Dyke, you know, emblazoned on the image of the baby. And then we did some other projects, like we did a project where we renamed streets for, in, for Gay Pride, where we stenciled them on the sidewalk and made signage that we put over the street signs. So it would be like Martina Navratilova Way or Audre Lorde Lane. <laughs> or we'd name, rename streets after lesbian heroines. How did that exist in the world? A sign over a sign? Yeah, sign over sign. For, for a gay pride weekend, because we knew it wouldn't last, but it was a way to kind of make our presence more felt. Fierce Pussy took a multivariable approach to the interlocking issues of queer liberation, sexism, homophobia, and building intersectional community. Joy Episala details some of the other projects they took on during the 1990s in her 2016 interview with Cynthia Carr. What it was about was that one evening in 1993, John Bobbitt came home drunk and raped his wife, Lorena, in their Virginia apartment. And Lorena got up afterwards, went to the kitchen, got a knife, and cut off John's penis while he was sleeping. Then she took off in the car and flung the severed penis into a field. The police searched, found the penis, and reattached it. And so this was our response to that. So here was the redacted text that said everything. And then next to it, again, in our typewriter font thing that we've been using, it said, next time we'll bury it. Fierce pussy. (laughs) So it was the early 90s. The right wing and the Christian coalition embarked on a campaign using phrases like, no special rights for homosexuals. And a slew of legislation across the country made it legal to discriminate against queers in the workplace, housing, parenting, healthcare. And so their um, homophobic language created a climate uh, which encouraged violence against queers across the country. And uh, so there were countless bashings and murders and firebombings. And Fierce Pussy responded with this poster campaign uh, appropriating no special rights. And so to ask heterosexuals the questions how would it feel to have that hatred directed to you? Hmm. So the posters, and there were a couple of them, it would be like this nice shot that we'd like pull out of a magazine of like a, a man and a woman sitting on a staircase, you know, like maybe he's going to become engaged to her or something. Right. And so underneath the text said, what if we firebombed your house because you were straight, your pussy, and then like a stamp across it diagonally, it said no special rights for heterosexuals. As part of their effort to spread the word, 
the group pasted these posters on the sides of a truck that they drove throughout New York City, which they called the Fierce Pussymobile. Joy Episala goes on to describe the posters, which appropriated pop and political culture. One of the posters on one side of the truck, and now we were getting to use color, you know, woohoo. It had this like starry background, right? like the universe, and upcoming from it, like zooming up, it said Dyke, the final frontier, to explore, you know, new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Right. And it looked like a movie poster. So that was one. And on the front of the truck, it said Fierce Pussy. And on the other side of the truck, it had a poster that uh, I shot. There was footage from original Stonewall of the Stonewall riots. Oh, yeah. And I shot footage off the TV. You see these protesters, and there's all this stuff going on, and so it's black and white. And again, we used all derogatory terms. It was yellow on this black and white image of these people protesting at Stonewall that queers were called. And it said, you're here, you're queer, fight the real enemy, mm-hmm. was the tagline. Right. So that was on the other side of the truck. And on the back of the truck, we did this AIDS poster. And it yeah. said, to do. It was script, and it said, start an IV, hold a hand, pick out a coffin, bury your best friend. Mm-hmm. And it says, um, AIDS, be enraged, become explosive. So there, there were two of those, and they were we pasted on the back of the truck. Oh. So we took turns driving it all over New York City during that weekend. As a collective responding to evolving needs, Fierce Pussy has had distinct periods of activity. Their mode of address has remained constant as they reach out to fellow queer women and a nurture community. Painter Kari Yamaoka describes both the group's progression and their distinctive tactics, even among lesbian collectives working at the same time. There's actually two phases of Fierce Pussy. There's the early phase in the 90s when we were this big amorphous group of women, and then there's the later phase more recently when it's the four of us. But Dyke Action Machine was also using the tropes of mainstream culture to subvert them, which is a very different language and a very different strategy. We were kind of doing the opposite. We were just using our own very low-tech, very fast means to try and draw attention to ourselves, but really not to... I think I feel like Dyke Action Machine was interested in talking to a larger audience that was not, not necessarily the audience of their peers, but could include their peers. And Fierce Pussy was not interested in the larger audience. We were only interested in our people, basically. And Kate Eichhorn, associate professor of culture and media at the New School, elaborates on Fierce Pussy in relation to other activist groups and the importance and intimacy of their work. You know, one of the things that distinguish the work of the collective from, let's say, the work of Grand Fury, who produced all those posters in the context of the AIDS activist movement, including the Silence Equals Death poster. What was so different about Fierce Pussy's work is that their intention wasn't necessarily to speak to the general public. Their intention was to speak to other lesbians. It was, in a way, not that long ago. It was only 30 years ago. But the visibility of queer women at that time wasn't what it was today. So if you were walking down the street and saw their posters, you felt they were speaking to other dykes, other queer women. They were speaking directly to you in a public space. So they talk about their work, and I think this is the way many lesbians experience their work, as reclaiming 
public spaces at a time when that was still a really kind of radical and unusual intervention. But I think it's really important to bear in mind that their audience wasn't so much the general public, but other queer women. In 2009, Harvard University hosted an exhibition that examined the early history of ACT UP, including a conference and several fierce pussy installations. Here's Claire Grace, assistant professor of art history at Wesleyan and one of the show's co-organizers. The fierce pussy residency and installations at Harvard were part of the exhibition ACT UP New York, Activism, Art, and the AIDS Crisis, 1987 to 1993, which was co-organized by myself and Helen Molesworth. And the show and the coinciding conference that we organized was really crucial to how Fierce Pussy's projects at Harvard were received and contextualized. And I think one of the things that might be useful for listeners to flag is that, at least in my experience, I was a graduate student, a third-year graduate student at the time, and in my experience and my dialogues with Helen, we were really struck by what seemed to be just a lack of understanding, lack of knowledge, a lack of recognition at all of the history of AIDS activism among students, my generation, graduate students, and also college students. I mean, obviously there were exceptions to this, of course, but just in general, I mean, I remember Helen describing when she first started talking about the project on campus among students, just being met with kind of blank stares. You know, it's interesting to think about the exhibition 2009. It kind of coincided with what turned out to be a larger quickening, I think, of interest in the history of queer activism among college students and in a larger sense as well. As part of their residency, Fierce Pussy had several installations on campus in student-focused places. Nancy Brooks Brody recalls the works they brought to Harvard as well as the controversies and painful memories they stirred. We then got invited to go to Harvard. There was this very big act up oral history project being curated by Helen Molesworth and Claire Grace. They were doing this big ACT UP oral history show where they were going to show that project. And Helen came to interview Fierce Pussy, and we basically spoke a lot to her, and she got excited about the idea of Fierce Pussy coming there. And so we spent a week or so at Harvard, and we did the bathrooms there. Mm-hmm. with students. And we did a workshop with the, at the Women's Center, I think. And we also got to install gutter at School for Architecture. So we did, a, we did several projects there. So we did our brand new gutter project, mm-hmm. and we did the old posters, floor-to-ceiling wallpaper of Are You a Boy or a Girl, oh, yeah. and our lists. And there, too, one of the students, Martabelle Wasserman, who made a beautiful um, catalog for that show as her project, her thesis, found that Harvard installed these bathrooms may contain offensive content. Harvard on the outdoor of the bath. Like, what about any of this is offensive? Mm -hmm. I am a, and so are you. 
-hmm. Are you a boy or a girl? I mean, it was just, and people were offended. And Martabelle would like take off those signs as part of her project. And so it's just kind of amazing how that oh, that material was, it was still so relevant. Yes. Yeah. And that was a really, that was in a really intense time because that was a revisiting of a lot of people from ACT UP. There were panels. Mm -hmm. Joy was on a panel. Many people were on panels. We all hadn't been together. And I think revisiting that material was, it was so moving and it was so clear and for me really shocking how much mourning we didn't actually do, right. how much was still in our bodies. I mean, I was just floored by how much was in there deeply, deeply, deeply buried inside that had never been really parsed out or unpacked and mourned. Mm -hmm. Because when people were dying, we just kept going. We spoke with Marta Bell Wasserman, who created the catalog to the show and is now a PhD student in art history at Stanford. And she told us about the institutional issues provoked by Fierce Pussy's residency. The institution put up the sign, and the sign said, this restroom contains a site-specific artwork dealing with gender and sexuality that is part of the exhibition Act Up New York, Art Activism and the AIDS Crisis, 1987 to 1993, on view at the Carpenter Center for the Visual Arts. Parents and guardians of school-aged children might want to preview the work. Alternative restrooms can be found on the second and third floors of the building. The collective did not want this on the bathroom. And so one of the things that I did, which felt really important to me at the time, was that I would go and take them down every day and they would put them back up. And then at some point, the institution was like writing notes on the back of them, like, why, why are you doing this? Like, we welcome dialogue or some sort of silly thing like that, of, of course, because there is no real dialogue with an institution. So then I started writing text on them back, like, why is text about lesbian pride inappropriate for children? In her 2016 oral history, painter Kari Yamaoka talked about the trauma and friction that the Harvard conference and show brought to the surface. I think during the worst of, it, of those years, I think there was a, I think the feeling, the sense of displacement came from feeling very embattled, feeling like one's friends and one's immediate community and circle of activists or people in ACT UP, our people were the ones that it was like an us and it was an us against them mentality. And I think that a lot of us got very entrenched in that and got very um, hardened by that. It was also hard to work our way out of that, you know, in, in the mid-90s. I should speak for myself, but uh, just emotionally, emotionally. And I, I, I think some of that had to do with the fact that none of us had any time to grieve back in the day at all, because there was always, when someone died, there was always work that needed to be done, or loved ones that needed to be taken care of, or actions that needed to be performed or demonstrations that needed to, one needed to go to. And it somehow made the work even more urgent. And so there was no downtime of like stepping back and like actually processing emotionally what one was going through or what we were going through as a group or as a community. And that became very, very clear when um, up at Harvard and a lot of people 
gave presentations and spoke. And it was almost like a kind of reunion of a lot of people that had not seen each other in a long time. And there was a lot of, that touched a kind of very raw nerve in a lot of us. And there was a lot of tears that were shed in that conference hall. We talked about how so much of our grief was unexamined, so much of our mourning was not done, um, and also how to try and, how do you make that understandable to a generation of people that didn't live through the AIDS crisis, that were too young, how to convey that sense of loss. While sifting through and processing the horrors of the AIDS crisis, all it unleashed and revealed, Fierce Pussy continued their efforts to establish a new queer history, one full of joy and hope. Here's how artist Nancy Brooks Brody described the work Gutter that they installed at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard during their residency. And then from being there and reading, looking through all those Pulp Fictions, we made a project called Gutter. We looked at the Pulp Fiction and we Xeroxed these pages that we then redacted and changed to some, we didn't, we just circled or whited out or magic markered, sharpied out and kind of tried to make a new story out of the stories. Because all the stories in Pulp Fiction are these lesbians that like eventually die or, you know, are, mm-hmm. are alcoholic or they sleep with men or right. you know, these, and we wanted Tragic. to re- yeah claim those and we called it gutter because Mm -hmm. of the gutter of the book Mm -hmm. and also like elevating something from the gutter. Claire Grace, assistant professor of art history at Wesleyan and a co-organizer of the ACT UP show at Harvard, told us about the importance of gutter. And the artists proceeded by photocopying pages of these books and redacting the text by blacking out or masking passages and words, circling keywords, and then re-photocopying those pages to form a kind of variegated grid. And it's it's just such a such an interesting work. They they, as they've discussed, the novels share one basic feature, which is basically like an ending that results in kind of short-circuiting lesbian love or desire by death or illness or return to heteronormative domestic life. So the artists edited the the novels by redacting them. They redacted them in a way that articulated this or that theorized this literary tendency and that also kind of exacerbated it in a way that maybe prolonged or intensified desire so that the, the ending the, the ending doesn't culminate in the the ending doesn't happen all that happens is the desire the good parts there, there's a really great passage from from the mural where there's a sort of two-page spread that all the kind of disappointing elements of the storyline are blotted out everything legible is blotted out except for the phrase I think it's like she always craved uh, on one side of the page and then on the other side, there's just this sort of zigzagging spray that descends down the whole page of the the name, the proper name, Joan, that's repeated six or seven times uh, in the page. And, and that's all the text that's available, which is so wonderful because, of course, Joan is a homophone 
for crave, right? So it's just, she had always craved and then Joan or Jonesing, Joan, Joan, Joan. So it's just, it just really like lingers on that sense of desire. The way the artists use the photocopy machine in this work and, and maybe other works too, it just becomes this incredibly sensorial instrument of mark making so that the the book pages suddenly feel like the crevices of like the the edges of book pages or the place where the book pages come together at the binding just seem sort of corporeal suddenly or like bedclothes or bodies in some sense what was so cool about it is they like that this passageway becomes a space for the narration of desire of of queer desire and the, the artists talk about this work and also I think their work more generally as kind of pivoting around, on the one hand, the social invisibility of queer people in many contexts. And then on the flip side, the kind of hyper visibility of queerness in public space as a target of violence. We asked Martabel Wasserman to reflect on the influence that Fierce Pussy had on her as an artist and scholar having created their show catalog as an undergraduate. Yeah, I think Fierce Pussy has an incredibly generous spirit. And I really try to reflect back what I learned from them, which is to take seriously the perspectives of people younger than me, as well as people older than me, and to really build cross-generational political movements and artistic dialogues. Fierce Pussy is really about an active intervention. For example, the piece Gutter that they did in which they crossed out texts from these pulp novels from the um, early 20th century to kind of reinscribe their own perspective as lesbians and to overwrite the narrative that was more exploitative or, or fetishy. They are always taking it into their own hands. So literally crossing out words on the page so that it reflects their desire or changing the names of streets in New York City to have the names of lesbian heroes. They just take it into their own hands. That is really important for me as an artist, activist, and academic, when sometimes it just feels so hard to make any change or to make yourself heard to come together that really like it can be as direct as crossing out words on a page or reframing something so that it reflects your position. Kate Eichhorn, Associate Professor of Media and Culture at the New School and author of The Archival Turn in Feminism, told us about the urgency of Fierce Pussy's work as it both mines and generates the archives of queer history, making something new while preserving the past. I guess I see their work as part of a broader impulse among lesbian artists of a particular generation. It's not just present in Fierce Pussy's work, but of lots of other lesbian artists who have very intentionally not only gone back to mine their own personal archives, right, but also to mine all sorts of institutional um, DIY archives to reconstruct lesbian histories, broadly defined, Um, but not with the intention of creating a linear narrative or suggesting that there's only one history. The impulse is almost always about how that history can inform current struggles. So I I think it's part of a broader movement to, to reimagine how we think about 
about history and queer history, not as a kind of linear narrative of progression. And I, I mean, I don't need to say that we live in a time when one can see that historical gains can be very quickly rolled back for women, for queers, for transgender people. So from the early 90s onwards, I think Fierce Pussy has very intentionally engaged in both constructing and deconstructing what queer history looks like. And that's part of the importance of their work. For show notes, works cited, and additional resources, visit aaa.si.edu slash articulated. This podcast is produced by Ben Gillespie and Michelle Herman from the Smithsonian Archives of American Art. It was edited by Hannah Hethman of Better Lemon Creative Audio. Our music comes from Sound and Smoke, composed by Viet Quang and performed by the Peabody Wind Ensemble, with Harlan Parker conducting. Special thanks to Nora Daniels and Thomas Edwards for narrating this episode. The Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution is a nonprofit organization that relies on donations from individuals like you to sustain our ongoing operations and special programs like Articulated. To support our work, please visit our website at aaa.si.edu support. Thank you.